High School Slumber Party is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things Cage Club related, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Welcome, everyone who's been bullied, all you underdogs out there, and a special welcome to those of you on the outside looking in. This is your moment, and this is High School Slumber Party, the podcast where and some friends look back at our teenage years through the lens of some iconic high school-centric films. I'm Brian Rodriguez, and the party's at my place this evening. But first, school is still in session, and we have some homework to chat about this was your assignment and i would like to see the results hope everyone is staying happy and healthy and once again a nice little shout out to our essential workers out there and to all of you who are listening in today again i appreciate it so much this has been such a fun run in such a weird time and this is going to be an awesome episode so thank you so much for tuning in First, homework. Where are you listening to us right now? Is it Google Play? Is it Spotify? Is it Stitcher? Is it Apple Podcasts? Because wherever it is, I want you to hit that subscribe button. And after you do that, or if you've already done that, why don't you leave us a nice little review? Or how about give us a rating, whatever the max rating is. Those are some ways you can help High School Slumber Party out. The other ways you can help High School Slumber Party out is by, of course, telling a friend about all the wonderful things we do at High School Slumber Party. Tell a friend who you think might enjoy podcasts about high school films or teen films. That would mean so much to me. What else would mean so much to me? If you check out my friend's podcast at cageclub.me, that's cageclub.me, the home of this podcast, as well as so many other great podcasts. If you want a little preview for that, check out what else releases on Friday, because Fridays are for fun, and Friday is quickly becoming maybe the best day on the Cage Club Podcast Network. Who knows? Okay, more homework. That would be, did you listen to the last Monday's episode, Cheer Monday, we talked about a film, but I'm a cheerleader, a little film that fell under the radar, I think, but you should definitely check out. I enjoyed it, and I want to thank my guest, Jenny O'Connell, one more time for being on that episode and celebrating Cheer Monday with us. Speaking of films that went under the radar, we don't have a film today, but we have a special, an extra special follow-up today. It's actually an interview, and I can't wait for you to hear it. First of all, I want to do more interviews, but this one, this one is near and dear to me and my co-host today, Kate Hudson, because we covered the film Angus in November, and we had a blast covering it. It was really, really fun. And long story short, the star of Angus, Charlie Talbert, reached out to me and Kate, actually, to 
you know, thank us for doing the episode, and he was, like, providing some awesome fact nuggets to us, and wow, I was like, we need to get him on the air, we need to hear this firsthand, the slumberers need to hear it, but before any of that, the immortal Kate Hudson, the most popular girl in school, He invited him on our fear episode that we were recording the next day. So if you're fans of the podcast, you've heard him before on our fear episode. But this is our chance to really dig in to the meat on the Angus episode. So your homework was hopefully to watch Angus, which you can stream anywhere now. Wasn't always the case before. Your homework was also to listen to our episode on Angus in November because there's some rebuttals here. And there's a lot of questions we had on that episode that get answered here today. And if you're an Angus fan tuning into this show for the first time, well, wow, you're in for a treat. That's all I can say. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Come on, guys. The bell doesn't dismiss you. I dismiss you. And remember, we might be being homeschooled, but I brought the bell home with me. Woo! <laughs> One more thing I wanted to say about this episode is that, you know, having Charlie Talbert on has been such a blast, really such a blast, that he's booked on some more episodes going forward, non-Angus-related episodes. We already recorded one, which we mentioned here, 3 o'clock high. That's coming out in the next couple weeks, so stay tuned for that one. That was a blast. That was a surprise fun movie, too. But for right now... Let's talk Angus. So pack your favorite jammies, tell your mother you're sleeping at Brian's, because we're about to get our party on. I leave you with another song off the Angus soundtrack. It's by Pansy Division, and the song is Deep Water. Bottom of despair Hormones raging Going crazy Is there another boy who cares? Deep water Pulling me down Deep water Afraid I'll drown I hear the gates go To San Francisco I'm ready, Freddie. I was born overweight. That, that- that comment's so loaded with pathos. Like, I don't, like, <laughs> where, where do you go from that? You just want to give you a hug. Oh, that's right. That's how we started out. Sympathy for the big guy. Well, I mean, I guess there's no better way to start this podcast out then. We're doing things a little differently today, but we have the same style introductions. So let's get things out of the way so we can talk about Angus Strikes Back with Charlie Talbert <laughs> and Kate Hudson, of course. But uh, <laughs> Kate, introduce yourself first. I am Kate Hudson. I am East Anchorage, class of 2002. Um, I've talked about my high school mascot way too much, and I think even my junior high mascot way too much. So I'm going to talk about my elementary school mascot. We were the Rogers Park Pirates. What up? Oh, cool. I like it. Pirates, Alaskan pirates. I love it. And Kate, you're kind of my co-host today because you and I did our Angus episode together, episode 81 on High School Slumber Party, if you guys want to listen. We had a blast doing it. You actually introduced me to the film, Kate, and the kick-ass soundtrack. And, you know, since then, we've become 
friendly and friends with Charlie Talbert. And the best part, the best part of all of it is it's brought us all together. (laughs) And, and we had that awesome fear episode, which was incredible. It was a blast to edit. I had so much fun listening back to it. It was very random and very, very cool. But I said on there and that we had to do this Angus Strikes Back edition because Charlie, you had messaged me all these cool facts and I just wanted to get those on the air for the slumberers out there. So Charlie, introduce yourself for those who don't know you, but if they've tuned in today, they probably do. Charlie Talbert, class of 97. I'm going to go with the other high school I went to, one of the other ones, the the Ruther Bulldogs. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Did it. you guys have an actual bulldog for your school? Uh, no, they, they couldn't afford a bulldog. You can even look at the community <laughs> college of uh, high schools. <laughs> wow. Ruther basically catered to uh, people that needed to make, make make up credits or have problems at home, and they could come in and like you know take care of their high school education without getting a GED at the school. So it was a it was an honorable school, of course. Gotcha. <laughs> okay, so we're here because again, you were the star of Angus. And I know you've talked about this a little on our show, but how did you get into acting overall? And what was it like growing up for you before Angus? What's what's your before Angus life like? Well, let me tell you, we're here because you guys uh, because you guys slammed me a little bit on Angus for my acting style, <laughs> being That's a young fair. fella. And she's like, she's like, he's a seventeen year old, eighteen year old kid. I was not. I was fifteen years old when we shot Angus. Wow. But before Angus, I was into school theater. I uh, I would sleep. In fact, all the way back through elementary school, I would sleep in the school the night before any production that I was doing in school because I was always friends with the janitors or mainly the janitors, people that worked at the school because they knew my entire family because my entire family went to all of the schools. So I kind of had an in (laughs) and I made that kind of a a thing. I think it was third or fourth grade was the first year I ever slept in the school the night before school at Durkee Elementary. Was it haunted? Uh, No, no, but it was was cold and and really cool to hang out in and just feel like I had the edge because I was always picked on very much like Angus growing up. So any kind of edge I could get in life, I would take it. And uh, that was something that I did. I I had a pretty abusive life growing up. My mom used to beat me up until I was like 17. But I was protected a lot by my cousins. I grew up with my grandma. Uh, At one point, I lived in the house with like 14 cousins, you know, a lot of girl cousins. (laughs) It was weird life. I mean, starting into it, you know, my mom accidentally shot my dad when I was uh, eight years old. I was in fourth grade. So I had to live with my grandma for quite some time. So it was kind of a weird... It was kind of a weird thing for me, but I used to work at uh, a car shop with a gentleman named Tony Ruffalo who used to race uh, funny cars and uh, drag cars, and he had his own car, and so a lot of my family members had worked for him. So I would go there like every day after school, and I would sweep the lot, or I would you know, learn how to help him with cars and things like that, and he was really into cycling, so you know, he would take me along with him whenever they did, went on trips. You know, We went for the, I think it was the 94, or 96, but 94 tryouts for the Olympics and stuff like that. And um, I used to try to cycle a bit, but I wasn't very good at all. <laughs> what are funny cars? Sorry, I've never heard that term before. Uh, funny cars are those long-nosed cars that look like a needlepoint. It's probably about 18 feet long. It's a really Jeez. long car. And it comes to a very, very fine point at the front with very light wheels. Uh, his was all black with uh, light gold flaking trim. super dangerous, dude. <laughs> well, he was pretty much done with that by the time... 
that, you know, I came into his life, he was more into cycling and training cyclists, okay. you know, and he would get me into that. In fact, we were coming home from Northbrook, Illinois, the velodrome, the night that I was discovered. And so this all happened like when you were like, basically, you're talking about ages from like eight to 12 or 13 here, right? Yeah, that that was pretty much my world, eight, eight to eight to. 15, actually, 8 to 15, because I worked with him all the way up through that, and then some after that. So it's safe wow. to say you're just never home. Avoiding the home. You know, I, <laughs> yep. my, my life besides that, too, was going down to the lake, and, uh, you know, my mom had a motorcycle at one point uh, that I would take around, and I had my grandfather's truck. He passed, uh, like, a week after Angus came out, or a month after <laughs> Angus came out. Wow. So I, I would take his truck and go down to the lake and, you know, do CB radio chasing with my friends. I, I We pretty much were never in the house, and then my cousins, at night, we would run through the neighborhood playing a game called flashlight tag where you'd have yep. like as realistic guns as you could possibly have running around God. the neighborhood <laughs> i lived on 11th and 63rd in kenosha and everything is a grid there so it's only 11 streets away from the lake so you had from there to the lake to hide you know <laughs> so it was, it was pretty Did you fun have siblings though was it like were you the one that got picked on in the family and your mom had like the favorite or no it was just me i, I was uh technically an only uh, uh. only child but i grew up with a lot of cousins so my cousins were my brothers and sisters at that point. So it, and grandma, grandma didn't really play favorites and stuff like that, but she would favor me a little bit because of all the tragedy and stuff that was going on in my world at the time. All right. Definitely some heavy stuff before you even shot Angus, but I could see a lot of the character of Angus in your background. So just tell us how that started. Like, how did you get attached to Angus? Yeah, yeah. I was in love with a girl from kindergarten to 12th grade, and she she was one of those girls that was really popular and things like that. And that comes into play because we had stopped into the Wendy's that hangs over the freeway, used to hang over the freeway on the way back from uh, Northbrook, Illinois, back to Kenosha. And it was around midnight, and uh, I was wearing, like, a biker shirt, you know, a cyclist shirt, and I was standing there, and one of my friends was actually working in the counter at Wendy's. And I decided to joke around with her and cheer her up because you know humor was my defense you know on the podcast when you guys were talking about angus you were like yeah it just seemed like a kid who was like doing the same thing all the way through and just kind of pushing through it it sounded like a real teenager well it, it was true but it was because i didn't get to express a lot of those emotions so i would hide them a lot with humor mm. and i would turn myself off kind of emotionally and just fight back with words if i could or joke whichever prevailed the cooler head always prevailed so i was telling a joke to a friend of mine that worked behind the counter and all of a sudden everybody started laughing at the 31 flavors people sitting around it was kind of a busy night for <laughs> for being a tuesday or thursday night in the middle of the week at midnight and people were just digging me and this guy comes up to me a rather large dude <laughs> comes up to me and he's like hey uh you're pretty funny how would you like to be in a movie and i was like wow Ooh. are you are you okay <laughs> and he goes, right? what? <laughs> he goes what why would you say that i'm like well i mean it's 12 o'clock at night i've got boobs and you want me to be in a movie near chicago i I don't know what you want from me. And he's like, no, no, man. We've been looking for this character in a movie called Angus for three years now. Wow. And we have not been able to find him. And we're going to try to start casting again. And uh, I'd really like for you to come audition for it. And I'm like, I don't. And he opens his wallet to pull out a card. And I see like an American Express card. And I was like, oh, maybe this guy's for real. I don't know anybody <laughs> with an American Express card. And that was Patrick <laughs> Reed Johnson. And he goes, you know, I, I, oh, wow. I, I wrote and directed a movie called Space Invaders. And I was like, I love space invaders he's like oh you do okay so you know who i am i'm like yeah 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 and so i you know i took his card and the information 
And he's like, yeah, I want you to come down on Wednesday to Planet Hollywood. You'll go upstairs. There's a casting director named Jane Alderman. She cast a movie called Rudy. I don't know. I'm like, I love Rudy. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and so come back and I tell Tony and Amy and, and I'm like, I, I, I might be in a movie. I, I don't know. I don't know. So I'm like riding high all the way home. It's now like one o'clock in the morning. I come in. And when you came into my house, we had basements, you know, because we we're in Wisconsin. When you come into the house, there's a long hallway. One goes into the main house. And then just before you go to the main house, you can either go upstairs or go down into the basement, uh, which was great for sneaking out. But uh, <laughs> so I go and I knock on the door and my mom's sleeping on the couch because my grandma wasn't feeling well that night. I'm like, Mom, Mom. She's like, what? I'm like, I'm going to be in a movie maybe. I don't know. She's like, that's great. Shut up. Go to bed. And I'm like, oh, OK. But we got to go to Chicago on Wednesday. Shut up. Go to bed. OK. So I went, I went downstairs and uh, went to sleep in the basement. It's but you just, took you to the Chicago. basement was cool, by the way. It wasn't like, I mean, I've had a messed up life, but the basement <laughs> was where you wanted to be. I picked the basement. So <laughs> I was like, yes, I have sleeping basement. Who took you to Chicago? Did mom pull it together? My mom. Chicago? Yeah, my mom took me on the motorcycle and we went down to Chicago that Wednesday. And uh, I go in and I, I'm kind of all over the place. I'm like, I, I can't tell you where my mind was, but I can tell you my heart was flutter. And I, I go upstairs and um, it's this really cool building that's like above Planet Hollywood. And I go inside and I'm sitting in the waiting room and I, I, I'm kind of noticing that all the chairs are like super wide. <laughs> and I'm just <sighs> like, God, they must have been really looking for fat kids. You know, because this chair is comfy. That's not, that's pretty rare. And I'm by myself, you know, because my mom's downstairs hanging out. She, I told her I didn't want to come up there because we have a weird relationship where we can get on each other's nerves or she could have said the wrong thing at the wrong time. And then it's all downhill from there. So they call me into the room. I think Jane came out and called me into the room. And I don't remember her being in the actual room when I came in. But I remember going and I remember seeing a big guy leaving that kind of looked like me physically. And I was like, okay. Okay, I got that. I fit them all, you know, and uh, I go into the room and I'm standing there and Patrick's not really looking at me. And he's just kind of looking at these papers and he goes, uh, all right, uh, we're going to read from your sides. And I go, what the fuck's a side? <laughs> <laughs> and, and he goes, uh, what? <laughs> I go, what's a side? And he goes, what? what? Uh, you don't... Oh, my God, you're the kid that I met in Wendy's. Oh. And, I'm, and I'm like, I'm like, yeah, that's me. I don't know what a sides is. And, <laughs> and he goes, oh, sides is like a mini. Don't worry about that. He's like, uh, tell me about yourself, man. And I kind of told him I was pretty candid about who I was, my life, what was going on, the heavy stuff. Because I knew based on the mo movie, Rudy, that I should be as honest with him about my life as I possibly could. And, and I go, you know, I deflect a lot by humor and doing impersonations. And he goes, well, do some impersonations for me, man. And I go, okay. He was like, who can you do? I go, um, I can do Jim Morrison from the doors. And he goes, oh, go for that. So I immediately <laughs> turned around and ran to the corner and started singing into the wall. And he, go, <laughs> he goes, Clever, nice. And I came back, I did all this, and I did like goofy and all this other stuff. And uh, we chat. He goes, "Look, man, I like you. I love your personality." Uh, he's like, "Can I give you some some uh, script scenes to look at, and then you can come back and read for it?" And I said, "Oh, you'll be here." And he goes, "No, uh, you'll read for Jane, and she'll put it on tape, and she'll send it to me." And I'm thinking, "Damn it, I didn't get this part. This stuff, you know." <laughs> And uh, sat on my porch in a rocker, very much like I am a wooden rocker right now, that barely fit me for like almost, you know, a full week, just rehearsing my lines after school, running them back and forward, looking at the different houses, pretending the houses were different people. And, uh, you know, I went back in for the callback. I did the audition and they sent it off and I didn't hear anything for like a couple weeks. 
and I got a little bummed and a little nervous, and I, I think I got picked on by my cousins a little bit. And then finally, I get a call from Patrick, and he goes, "Hey, buddy," and I go, "Oh, hey, how's it going?" And he goes, "Hey, no, no, it's Patrick from you know." And I, I go, "No, I know who it is." He's like, "Hey." We'd love for you to come out to California and read for the producers and stuff like that. Based on your tape, you did a really good job. And I was like, okay, it's like, we'll put you up in a hotel by the Santa Monica Pier and we'll give you some money to hang out while you're hanging out. And we'll make sure you get to the airport and back from the airport. And if you need to ride somewhere, I was like, great. So they, uh, they took me and I, they put me up in Santa Monica. At the, I think it was a Radisson time. And I had to go in and audition for Angus. I think it was the next day or the day after the next. And I go in and as soon as I'm walking into the building, I see faces like Ethan Suplee is there, uh, who I oh. don't know yet. You know, I just <laughs> know he's a big guy and he's got to be going out for Angus. And I walk by Whoopi Goldberg of all people. Wow. And, uh, and this was Ronnie <laughs> was she Estel. going up for? Wait, was she going up for Angus? I that couldn't tell you. <laughs> I couldn't tell you. I honestly couldn't tell you. But I, when I went in, I, I, it was for Ronnie Eskel, who was the casting director, and then Richard Hicks, who was a casting associate, who's a casting director now, who actually just brought me in on the live action Lady and the Tramp not too long ago. You know, and I, I go into the room and uh, they're introducing me and I'm kind of walking by everything and it kind of feels like I'm, you know, in this crazy environment I've never been in, which is an office of people running around and pictures on the wall and script notes and things like that. And it's so trippy and I'm just kind of lost. I'm not really too nervous. Uh, and I go into the room and then they bring Chris into the room. And somehow it's mentioned between me getting into the room to Chris getting in the room that the little girl from Space Invaders might be the love interest. In, in <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's cool. I, I, okay. And so I go into the room and Chris is there with me and the camera's set up and Ronnie and all those guys, they're, they're like, hey, uh, we'll be right back. You guys hang out. Just uh, shoot, you know, shoot the shit. Have fun. Uh, we'll be back in a few minutes. And they leave the room. But little did we know that they were still watching us. The camera was on wow. and they were all in the other room and they were playing it safe. They, they wanted to see if Chris and I would get along and they were calming my nerves at the same time, as far as I understood. And uh, Chris and I, we start joking, but we're finishing each other's sentences like immediately. Like we're just on top of it and we are having a, and, and I can't remember if it was that first day, but I feel like they brought in Vanderbeek that day. Oh no, they didn't bring in Vanderbeek that day. They, so they, they come into the room and Dawn Steele was there and Susan Landau and uh, they, they go, we wanna, is it cool? We're not gonna run auditions today. We'd love to send you guys to, I don't know, Disneyland, give you a couple hundred bucks, see you guys really get along. Wow. And I'm like, who the f not going to get along in the happiest place on earth with 200 <laughs> right? bucks in their pocket? You know? And they're laughing, and Chris is like, yeah, I was here. And so we went to Disneyland. Chris's dad drove us, and we had my guardian came with us. Uh, my mom stayed back. She didn't, she didn't go to the Six Flags or, or Disneyland, as I recall. And uh, we did Splash Mountain, we took pictures, and we were so happy. And then they brought us in that Monday to start reading. We started doing reads. They brought in uh, James Vanderbeek, who it was kind of weird because Chris and I were already against him because he was so damn beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> so the dynamic was absolutely perfect. And then I went home. You know, I, I kept Chris's number and we, we talked from time to time. And I get a call and it's probably like a month later. And I get a call and he's like, uh, hey, man, we really appreciate you coming out. I'm so sorry it didn't work out the way, you know, you would want. And I'm like, oh, no, man, that's that's cool. He goes, 
but it looks like you're going to have to spend a few months with us. Is that cool? And I'm like, well, you know, it's, wait, what? <laughs> I'm like, that's, I got it. And he's like, you got it. That's wow. so cruel. That's Harsh, cruel. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Patrick was really good at manipulating my emotion. And he did so when he needed to, you know, and that was, that was the beauty of Patrick and I's relationship besides him making my life a living hell for the next uh, 20, 20 years and perfectly beautiful life. <laughs> you know. <laughs> He's like, I am setting you up for a life filled with rejection and winning. Are you ready? And I'm like, yeah. What am I doing? <laughs> so, you know, you said we shit on you, I guess, on the first thing. But I, I don't know. I you didn't. didn't really... You didn't. No, no, no. I wouldn't have reached out if you guys were wholehearted, like, tearing me apart. Keep in mind, I reached out almost immediately after I was done listening to the podcast. You guys were honest. And I really liked it. At first, I was a little thrown because you guys were like, yeah, Angus, except for Angus. But then, you know, Kate had talked about it, and she was like, you know, it's hard to go against Kathy Bates and George C. Scott, you know, and he feels like a 17-year, 18-year-old going in. I was like, you know what, I get that. I get that. And if I'd been 17 or 18, I would have expected a little more out of me, too. But then you were, you also followed up with, yeah, but it really did seem like, it took me out of it at times, but it really did seem like a teenager Absolutely. in this scenario. Oh, yeah. And I, I respected both of you for that opinion because both were 100% correct. And I was like, you know what? They could be my friends. And uh, I reached out immediately to both of you. Well, we definitely appreciate it. Um, and I wa- watched it again before doing this. And it's... Me too. Me too. I did too. <laughs> it's something where like, and especially when you tell me uh, how Patrick discovered you and such, it makes so much more sense because like, I think he was going for that realness. And I- I'm not saying this to blow smoke up your ass. Like, I don't know if I could picture anyone else in this role. What, what, hold off. Hold off. You did not see what Whoopi could have done, but go on. <laughs> Nice. I watch these films a lot for this podcast. A lot. And this is one of the most unique, like, leading characters I've ever seen in this kind of film. So, I don't know, maybe just my expectations are different from everything else I've seen. But, again, I love that story you just told. Again, him discovering you at a Wendy's. It makes so much sense. We're still good friends to this day. I mean, we've we've been in talks about the uh, follow-up and things like that. I'm friends with uh, Chris Crutcher, who wrote the original short story. In fact, we were all on a conference call uh, last year talking about stuff and things. That's awesome. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask. <laughs> I wouldn't take his call on April Fool's Day. I would never take this Patrick guy's call. Like, April 1st or, like, a day before or a day after, I just wouldn't, dude. It just sounds like he's the type. <laughs> Well, you know, the, like I said, he was really good at manipulating my feelings when I needed it. Like, you know, there was a scene where um, Grandma-to-be Anna Thompson gives me the package of the tuxedo, <laughs> which was given to me, by the way. There's a salesman in that. I don't know if you remember the Snackwell's cookie commercials, but he was like the lead spokesman <gasps> for, for Snackwell's cookies at the time. <laughs> oh and I was God. like, I love that guy, you know? <laughs> and we, we shot that in Minnesota at a place called Paul's Big and Tall. And uh, we go in and I couldn't cry. I needed to cry like immediately as soon as I saw it. And it was very difficult for me to cry at that point. I don't know what it was if I, if I bottled my emotions too much at a point. And this is before we shot the scene with the, you know, the dropping of the king on the chessboard. But uh, when I opened the package, Patrick had put a note inside that said, we just got the call. Your grandmother died. <gasps> and I immediately just started crying and and, and when we when they yelled cut, I walked over and started punching Patrick. And he did it because Anna, the actress, she had no patience for me not being able to cry. Oh, so wow. he, he was able to help me through that right away. I think that was like the third or fourth take. That is some wow. Jackie Cooper shit right there. Wow. <laughs> 
They did that to child stars in the 30s. They were like, we're going to shoot your dog. Right. And it was perfect, though. It was something that I wanted. And and he gets it. Like, he gets me because I need to physically feel it at the time Mm. before I could channel something like that. Because I'd spent so much of my youth trying to block out all this stuff that was happening. He needed to get to the core of me. In fact, you know, we often talked about the girl that I was in love with while we were talking about Melissa Mm. Lefebvre to put me in that state of mind. Patrick was really kind and giving because he knew the limits I could take and not take. That's awesome. I have a lot of sympathy and empathy for that situation, Charlie, because you were still in the middle of the trauma, like with your family stuff, and you were having to start to process it in a situation where those are, you know, life-saving techniques. And it's like, shit, you have to unpack while it's still not necessarily safe too. So that's Jesus. <laughs> I was listening to the podcast before we started this one that we, we you guys did on uh, in November last year. And uh, you were talking about how the grandfather dialogue was added on to because of the cutting out of the fathers. The cutting out of the fathers actually yeah, did let's not talk about happen that. until yeah. they were in editing. Wow. So you had a dad on set. Yes. My mother was not gay in the film. Okay. Okay. Because there's a lot of scholarship online that's contradictory. Yeah. So I want to clear that up. She was a truck driver named Bruiser. <laughs> she had turned off that side of her that wanted anybody because of the separation between her and her husband, who's played by Larry Drake, who you can see for a split second when I'm crying at the top of the stairs after Grandpa dies. Dr. Giggles was my dad. I used to joke about it. I was like, Dr. Giggles is my dad and Misery is my mom. <laughs> this is amazing. <laughs> Yeah, and wow. and uh, I cannot remember the actor's last name, but he was uh, Dan Aykroyd's rival in uh, Trading Places. Do you remember the guy that kind of takes over his life in at the club? You know, his girlfriend, yeah. Muffy, oh, yeah. and all that. Uh, Chaz, and he was a very a Robert. Robert, uh, who was a very talented like uh, television and film actor at the time, he's the one that's talking to Meg in the kitchen about, oh, it's fine, Meg, everything's just fine. You know, your cooking is great and everything before the wedding is starting. Mm-hmm. And he was the other gay father. And they, we had some really great, intense, quiet, calm, emotional moments that I'd shot with uh, Larry Drake. And one of those scenes was actually released in the TBS version at one point. And that's why the drama comparison, that's why I'm more playful with Grandfather because in those heavy scenes, except for the, obviously the Superman's not brave scene, it's because it was supposed to be polar opposite of what I was having with my actual dad who looked like me, you know, who was, oh. I could identify with more. So that's why when I'm working with George T. Scott, it's more like a teenager just being like, dude, you're too old, man. You don't get it. You don't know what you're talking about. So you never got that. Yeah. So I rewatched it today, too, and I was listening to what mm-hmm. we were talking about. And the tone with Kathy Bates and Grandpa was fairly similar, like surly teenager versus like surly playful teenager. So it, right. it, it makes sense that there was that third, like, no, this is a well-rounded kid. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. You know, Larry Drake has a scene with me in his kitchen where he goes, you know, being different is weird. You know, I'm gay. You know, and it's it's this whole wow. other stigma on top of him being overweight. And you better believe me, I was destroyed when I found out that they cut the gay fathers out of the film. I, I was really sad. And this is 1995. That's insane. Yeah. yeah. Do you have any insight on why they cut that angle? It felt too long and depressing for them. And they were trying to figure out how to market the film. And I remember this marketing team worked on a movie called Who's Your Daddy that was directed by Andy Fickman that I was in. And it was about a kid who inherits his mom and dad's Playboy business. And I was really... <laughs> <laughs> with, of course. Uh, yeah, 
Wayne Newton plays like the Playboy man. You know, he bought oh he brought gosh. he brought the rights uh, to the song "Time of the Season" for that film. And Andy was such a great director. I let him down in one of the scenes in that movie, and I never got over it. So I made sure I did a good job in all the other scenes. You know, and uh, but I remember when he said, "Yeah, we've got this uh, marketing career. They're the ones," and I was like, "They're the ones that did Angus." No, no, no. You know, I was so <laughs> bummed out because oh, wow. I didn't see a preview for Angus until I was in New York a week before uh, Angus came out. There was no previews on the air until a week before Angus had been released because they were still trying to figure out how to market the damn thing because it wasn't supposed to be a comedy. You know, there's funny moments. It was supposed to be a heavy dramedy. And that was the thing. They tried to push it as, you know, an all-out teenage comedy like Heavyweights or something that had come out in February of that year. And made three times what we did. You know, so they were like, yeah, let's go that route. And by that time, they had already butchered the movie enough that it didn't it didn't matter. So that's why it didn't find its crowd until well after the movie was over. And you're fairly young at this point. Could you recognize that? Oh, I, like, I voiced oh, it shit. loudly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> when when I went to the editing bay and I watched a cut and I had to I had to narrate the movie. So I spent like a total of eight months on this movie because I had to go in for on and off for four months and go in mm-hmm. and do changes in my, uh, what do you call it, my narration. Oh, uh, yeah. And I, I was starting to see the changes and I was like, why did you do that? And I almost got a fight with with Dawn Steele, who you know she used to be head of Paramount. She was a beautiful, wonderful woman. She was married to Chuck Rovin, who was one of the producers. Charles Rovin, who was one of the producers on the film mm-hmm. as well. I was so sad what they had done to the film because they took away half of the heart of it, and uh, I was pretty bummed all the way through that movie coming out. The junket was really cool. I remember when we had wrapped Angus, my aunt was with me for the film because I knew if my mom was there, we'd fight too much and it would be too much of a problem. And uh, so I brought my aunt. Turned out my aunt was a bit of a klepto and she stole like the backs of the chairs for, <laughs> from Angus. She sold, stole Jersey Scott's, Kathy Bates, mine, Chris's. And, oh my God. And That's she, awesome. And she stole the, the VCR <laughs> from her room at the Oakwood Apartments. So they were going to send us to Germany and then, you know, the producers were like, no, you took too many things from it. I was like, I oh didn't take God. anything. So they ended up doing a local tour where they sent us to New York and Philly and all these places. And and uh, my mom ended up, we ended up meeting, uh, it was the, the week we were on the junket. I remember Chris Farley did his cartwheel on uh, David Letterman. And we had met uh, Richard Simmons in his rainbow colored glitter vest when he was going to do <gasps> Letterman that night. And he opened the door for us when he was on his way to go record. There is a wrap up to that story about the chair backs. So my my aunt uh, has recently, her health has deteriorated a bit. And uh, my brother, Ricky, who helped move her down, was going through her boxes and found all of that stuff a couple of years ago. And I was able to send Chris his chair back. I was Aww. able to send Chuck Rovin, uh, wow. George C. Scott's chair with a letter explaining what had happened. And then I sent uh, Kathy Bates her, her chair back as well. I got a hold of her through her publicist and sent that off to her wow. uh, publicist to make sure she got it. I was so happy and elated. That was stresses that weighed on me for 20-something years. And I, I cried for like half a day. No. A couple other questions. You've mentioned a bunch of the cast, and I know in other episodes you've mentioned your relationship with Chris Owen. So I'm going to go through the cast, and I want you to just tell me memories, thoughts, whatever comes to mind. And let's start with Chris Owen, because you're still good friends, right? Right. But Chris Chris is one of my best friends in the whole wide world. In fact, I lived with him for, gosh, I must have been... 12, 13 years. Oh, wow. Yeah, when I moved back to Los Angeles, 
first of all, I fell in love with a stalker. Remember that whole story? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, when I, when I was leaving uh, to go back home, I heard Chris's voice over the air for uh, October Sky saying, what do you want to know about rockets? And I was like, you know what? I got to give this another shot. I've got to do it. And my coworker, who's long since passed, Barry, Barry Warshawski, when I was working at the Big and Tall Men's store. Uh, that's right. I worked at the Big and Tall Men's store. Uh, I was an assistant manager. And he, he, uh, Gave me five hundred bucks and said, "Man, go, you know, go follow your dream." You know? Wow! And I did. I, I I was very fortunate to speak to him before he passed uh, this past year and video call with him uh, the night before, and we talked about it. And I couldn't thank him enough for where I am now. It's because of him. And uh, Chris and I, I went down. I lived. Chris, uh, I, I basically said, I'm not going to go back home. I'm going to make something of it. And uh, I actually started working a bunch and got into a real heavy streak. But Chris and I, Chris always took care of me as a friend. Like when I didn't quite fit in because I was too gregarious, Chris was there for me. You know, but when Chris was bummed out, I was there for him. Or when he needed help, you know, working on something or just, you know, having direction with something or was having problem with girls and vice versa. We were brothers, you know, and we still are brothers. So, you know, I'm only a phone call away from, from him and vice versa. And we chat and, you know, he called me on Valentine's Day when my mom passed and, you know, mm -hmm. we talked. And that was one of the few things in my world that could have soothed me at that time. And, you know, he's always been that guy. He's always been there for me. And he's always had my back no matter what. I mean, it's so awesome, like, just learning how you guys met and that that continues today. And, and he's someone who we've talked about a lot on this podcast because he's in mm -hmm. a lot of these awesome films playing these great characters right <laughs> it's so cool to hear that like i don't know i don't know it just warms my heart to hear that you guys are still this close of friends i used to joke with him about dude i, I want you to know i made you and he goes why do you say that <laughs> i go well because i broke chris's nose so i i don't know if you noticed this but chris at one point during i guess has a very smooth nose <laughs> and, and then oh, uh and his out. next film he doesn't have a very smooth nose and that's because we were play fighting and i popped him in the nose and, and he's the second actor that i broke his nose but he's the first person that i did it to and i go i made you man i gave you your unique look but you know what for him to be so cool about it was ridiculous because he was a little guy compared to me and i was oh yeah stupid dude i was stupid gregarious and jovial i'm like <laughs> everything's fine crack oh god Oh, you know, I killed my friend, you know, but, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I love him. And for, like for this podcast, his run from like 99, I guess like really 95, 99? excuse me. Oh, 95. No, 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 I know, I know 95, but I'm saying like, so in 99, I think he did. She's all that off the top of my head. Uh, mm -hmm. Can't hardly wait. I think it was 98. Yeah. Major, major pain Sky. first. Major pain first. Oh, Remember, major he was pain. the cover. Yeah. Oh. I forgot about that. Yeah. Wow. So we went to Universal Studios and this was when we were working on Angus and we're standing there and there's like this 80 foot Chris face with David Wayans. I was like, that's amazing. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, I totally <laughs> forgot that. You're right. Major Payne saw that in the theater. Oh, yeah. Like so many of these of his films I saw in the theater as well because like we went to October Sky, American Pie, The Shermanator. Mm -hmm. And it's not a high school film, but I saw Ready to Rumble in the theater. Like the dude was. Oh, yeah. I remember. Stuff. And he would, he would try to get me in on something. That's so, like, you know, he tried to get me. I went up for Varsity Blues and Ready to Rumble because uh, those, those directors like, you know, that director liked me. But the problem was I, I was never fat enough. So he was always there to console me and work with me on like much more serious stuff. In fact, the second role I ever did or I was I booked was with Harry Dean Stanton and Jenna Rollins, uh, Kieran Culkin and Sharon Stone. It was a movie called The Mighty. And oh, yeah. I lost that role because they decided to go with a different actor for the lead and I looked too much like him. So they left me in a hotel room 
for a few weeks without telling me I lost the role. Oh my God. And uh, so I decided, screw it, I'm going to a strip club. So I took Chris's dad's car and went to a strip club. <laughs> and oh I, had, I had left a scholarship for this. Peter Chilson was the director. I cannot remember the producer's name, Simon something. They decided not to tell me because they were, they were trying to find who would eventually become uh, Eldon Hansen. They wanted somebody with a more rough look about him. And of course, I had a really soft face back then. And Kieran Culkin is, is who they decided to go with. And wow. us next to each other, that's two really baby-faced kids. So they were like, okay, let's go with somebody else. So I ended up having to sue Miramax. I won that lawsuit because I lost out on a scholarship. Wow. Because Good. I wouldn't do that film. But Chris was yeah. there for me during that whole time. You know, So Chris has always had my back, my front, my middle, my side. He's always been my rock throughout life. But also, you knew Harvey Weinstein was a piece of shit well before anyone else did, it sounds like. <laughs> that wasn't, that, it was a Weinstein project, but it wasn't Weinstein's fault. It was, because uh, I had booked that. I remember being really nervous. That was my third major audition. My second one was for Mallrats, for Brady. Wow. And then my third one was for this film, and I had to fly out right after flight 801 TWA went down, and I was really nervous about flying. And we'd already lost flight 800, I can't remember which order. And uh, so I had to fly out, and I was fully prepared. I went into the office, Deborah Quill, I believe, was the casting director. And uh, I go in, and I have this mirror, and I'm looking at it. I'm supposed to be looking at a picture of my father, and I just break down, and I'm in the corner, and I'm shivering, I'm crying, I'm doing the scene. And they're like, what are you doing for the next few months? (laughs) And I was like, well, okay. So I booked it on my first audition. I was like, okay, oh, wow. this, this is going to be good. But when I lost that, it was really, really tough for me because that was my first big hi-ho, you know, out yeah. in California. And that was that was really a weird, weird time for me. So Chris was always there for me. Wait, wait, let's backtrack because Bro- wasn't Brody's character, Mallrats, wasn't that Jason Lee? And he was like 30 in that? And he right, was 16? right. <laughs> right. Well, keep in mind, they wanted to go with, it wasn't him in control. It was Gramercy Films at the time. Mm-hmm. So it was one of those things where they were going through people that had just had a streak on something. They were, you know, gotcha. and I had just had Angus. So it wasn't like they were going to make it a teenager movie and decided to age it up. I think actually it was something like that. Like they wanted to go a certain way. Like Gramercy wanted to go a certain way. So I think Kevin Smith might've had to entertain him. Mm. But I remember loving that script. And I was so happy after seeing it that I didn't get it. Cause I was like, that's, I could not <laughs> have, I would have totally made that movie blow. <laughs> yeah, you know, so that was one of the, I, I just did a movie with uh, Kevin Smith called uh, Max Reload and the Nether Blasters. I have a small part in that film. They were originally going to, you know, they were thinking about me for his role if he wouldn't do it. And he ended up doing it. So I got to hang out with him in California. And uh, it comes out like in a month and a half. But I was really wow. stoked. I was like, that's one of those full circle things that I really wanted to happen. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Do we mind if we backtrack a little? Go, 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 go. I got nothing but time. I don't want to assume that Angus fans listen to our fear episode. <laughs> because <laughs> I don't know how much crossover there is except for in in the brain of Kate Hudson. To me, it's a one-to-one, just so you know. <laughs> right, right, right. Okay, yeah, because I did have some questions. After Angus, you teased a little bit about like some interesting cross-country car chase and such. Please fill us in what happened after angus i have to know okay all right so we're going to diverge from what the people were like on angus we're going to talk about my morally screwed up <laughs> yeah we'll uh, we'll get back to them they'll always right. be here i just don't want to forget this <laughs> uh yeah no this this i i was found by a stalker on the internet because by, of angus, though. by the name of lisa yeah she was into big guys uh, with soft faces, and that was me. But this, but this is back in the day when it was harder to stalk people on the internet, right? Her friend was called Internet Shelly because she was the friend with internet. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, oh and she God. was able to find articles about me. I think she started oh with God. the review of Angus because uh, uh, Roger Ebert gave me a really great review in that film. And she started with that, and then she like was trying to figure out where I came from, find out where I was from, then found articles oh my God. about me, and then found my grandmother, found my name. There's another Charles Talbert. She found that number first. He said, that happens to me all the time. I'm the wrong person. So she went back to the drawing board, chased my grandmother's number down, called her, and then I came home one day from school. And I remember it was towards the end of high school, and she's like, hey, there's this person that's calling for you. She says she's a fan from San Jose. And I'm like, okay, okay, I guess I'll call her. And uh, so I got on the phone with her and we talked for like, you know, I I guess it must've been about three or four weeks sending pictures back and forth. And she was like nine years older than I I was at the time. And it was, uh, yeah, it was weird. It was was weird. (laughs) Yeah. But it was one of those things where I was flattered that somebody went through all that trouble in a time where you had to go through all that trouble. And I knew it was a time that it was very hard to find someone, you know, especially how she described how she found me. She saw me on the preview for Don Juan DeMarco and then ended up watching the film and fell in love with me and blah, blah, blah. And uh, so I was like, okay. And then uh, high school came to an end and I said, uh, Grandma, I'll be back in a couple of weeks. And I got in the car and I, uh, or I flew out to California and Chris picked me up from the airport and Chris was like, what's up, man? And I'm like, puberty, you know, <laughs> and uh, I went and lived with Chris and Chris's dad took me up for the first time to meet her. He was my bailout excuse, you know, in case, in case I had to run and I just stayed. Chris's dad sounds like a coolest shit guy because he keeps popping up in these stories. Yeah, in the background right. Right. I was thinking the same thing. Chris's dad, um, we've long since parted ways with, you know, people that uh, hang out or talk or anything like that. But I tell you, him and Chris were the reason that I survived so much in my, my youth. Just having a roof over my head, making sure I had transportation making sure I had what I needed when I needed it. They were truly my godsend, if you will, you know. (laughs) So I will always be forever in debt to those two. One of the reasons I brought that up was because I'm curious, like, like, how did you feel after Angus? It wasn't the project you wanted it to be, you know, just because they cut it so differently, but, like, were you riding high? Like, you're a movie star. You were, you know, just (laughs) some kid. Suddenly, you're on the front of posters. The movie is named after your character. So, like, like, what did it feel like? Oh, I got to tell you. So, the girl that I was in love with from kindergarten to 12th grade, uh, whose parents didn't really like me much, you know, and, uh, of course, you know, she she was in the audience with her friends, who I knew from school, and we were uh, watching Mortal Kombat. And I was like, a, I was a few few rows up from her, but I knew she was there. If she's in the room, I knew she was there. You know what I mean? I was like, she's in the building. She's in the building, everyone. Everyone be cool. And everybody's like, shut up. I'm like, okay. And uh, so I could not control it. I kid you not. I'm sitting there and I'm watching Mortal Kombat. And then the, I hear the, and the, the beginning of Angus pops up. And my face pops up on screen, <laughs> and I just jump up and I look at her face and I go, "Ha!" <laughs> oh, oh! Uh, I, and I was like, "Thank you. That's what you get for not being cool to me." And I sit back down. And uh, it was a terribly indulgent, terribly humiliating, terribly fulfilling every emotion you could possibly have right there that moment. So that that pretty much summed it up. And I rode that high a, a little bit until, you know, it came out. And uh, I even wrote it through that, too, because it was just, you know, I didn't really think about the box office numbers or anything at the time. And it's so weak. It was like four million. Uh, we were up against some really good films that week. Oh, Babe, yeah. Babe Pig in the City was still playing in theaters at that time. <laughs> it came 
month, it came out the month previous, but it was still pushing theaters, you know. And uh, the the marketing for the movie was just so wrong. So the oh, people yeah. that went to go see the movie during that opening weekend were like, that wasn't what they promised us. And they told everyone, that's not what they promised us. And it just didn't keep going. And fucking powder. Did I make that up? I thought they uh, pitted powder, powder against them. I, I can't remember, but I feel like powder was in the time was in the theater at the same time. Because I remember watching powder uh, at the Market Square Theater in Kenosha. Kind of neat, because I got to keep a bunch of the real movie stands. They let me run one of them. I treats for going there and signing autographs and stuff was I get to go behind the theater and take any of the old signage that they use professionally. And I remember taking like a twister one that lit up and all these cool, yeah, these cool signs, but it it was just one of those things where, but I didn't really grow to appreciate Angus as much after the heartache uh, from the mighty uh, because until I started getting fan mail, which still happens constantly People are a huge fan of Angus, and the people, the audience it was supposed to find, finally found it. Absolutely. I've got a question about that. How much do you think the soundtrack helped that, though? Because I feel like the soundtrack in the mid '90s had a lot more legs than the actual movie did. The soundtrack had so much leg that if we had just released the soundtrack in theaters, we would have made <laughs> a ton of cash. What the soundtrack did was it helped me find audience members that were older you know it helped the movie find audience members that were older than the demographic it was pitching to do you know what i mean oh yeah absolutely but how many people you know bought the soundtrack for the green day song which is the only place you could get it or the weezer song. Car, right right kate uh, hudson did kate hudson did I oh no that. kate yeah. hudson kate hudson <laughs> knew about this movie because she followed green day and very much <laughs> wanted to see it in the theaters but it was just out before she could go <laughs> right, right, yeah, and, and, and soundtrack really pushed it along because there's some diehard Angus soundtrack fans. I have a few people that I've posted on my Instagram that have one dude actually has a tattoo of me walking away from the light, you know, at the end wow. of the movie. But then wow. another dude has the tattoo of the Angus soundtrack, you know, the the symbol of Angus and that on his shoulder. And it's I'm trying to remember his handle. It's like a ghost of Craig T. Nelson. Uh, <laughs> him and his brother both have, and his brother has. A, I might have this reverse but his brother has the petri dish on his ankle (gasps) you know there's a lot of people that became fans of this movie because of the soundtrack or found it through the soundtrack yeah a thousand percent and it found a wild wider market because of the soundtrack as well you know it found more of that angsty angsty person you know that was maybe in 12th grade you know something like that through (laughs) the soundtrack and then it found everybody else because they remembered what life was like, you know? So yeah, it really found a market after the pack. Absolutely. It's one of the greatest like soundtracks I think ever. I like, I try oh, yeah. to collect soundtracks and I, again, Kate, you introduced me to this film and when I watched it, I was like, Oh my God, how do they, you know, it totally like eclipse a moment in time and music. And that's what a good soundtrack does. And the vinyl is blue. Actually, if you buy the Angus vinyl, it's a blue record. Oh yeah. I bought it. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> How did this happen? How did they get all these bands in this similar genre to contribute to it? Do you have any idea? Uh, you know what? I couldn't answer that question as well as Patrick Johnson could. I would tell you that I know that Green Day and Weezer were excited because they were asked to write a song for the film. And there was an interview with Weezer and Green Day. And they were talking. It was unrelated. And I remember this being on MTV. And they were chatting. And uh, I think Billy Joel, he, he looks over and he goes, you know, uh, yeah, we just got asked to do... Uh, you know, want to put one of our songs on the Angus movie soundtrack. 
And Rivers Cuomo was like, yeah, us too. <laughs> and, uh, and they did. And I only recently discovered that original song last year when a fan had brought it to my attention. And it's called Wanda. And it talks about the gay fathers. And it talks about everything that the movie really was. And they didn't use it, of course, because they changed the format. I feel baby Kate Hudson's eyes lighting up here. So oh, I'll give you the baby, floor, Kate. baby Kate Hudson has some of the answers for my friend because it was on, <laughs> it was on Reprise Records, which is Green Day's album, uh, record label, which was also the Muffs record label. And then they brought in the bands from Lookout Records, which was their old label. And then I think Ash was on Reprise. And I, yeah, and keep in mind, yeah, Don right? Steele, who was producing, you know, and we la- yeah, I heard you guys laughing about Cool Runnings, but uh, Don Steele was one of the most powerful women in, in Los Angeles, especially for five years when she ran Paramount. Well, first off, I love Cool Runnings. That I love Cool Runnings, too. A laugh just... of admire, like admiration. Right. <laughs> My right. laugh was more like Angus and Cool Runnings don't seem like they're in the same ballpark, right? Like, Sure, I... sure they are. I mean, you got John Candy and you got Charlie Collins. <laughs> <laughs> I think also Green Day's producer was Rob Cavallo on Dookie. I could be making this up. I don't have my uh, laptop in front of me. But I think he was also the soundtrack like advisor for Angus. I think you're too. right. They sent us to a Green Day concert uh, <gasps> in Carson City. And we were allowed to go on stage with Green Day. And we <gasps> were given a bunch of backseat passes to give out to different fans. And when we first go in to meet Green Day, in fact, I have one of the pictures of me sitting next to Mike. And uh, we went into their little green room. And they're like, you know, get these. Billy was like, get these pics out of here. We got it. We got to get ready, you know. And, and I was like, hey, man, I, I'm Charlie. I play Angus in the movie. He's like, oh. Oh my god i'm sorry man oh wow but you yeah dude come on in and you know we hung out for a little bit with him and got all the dookie gear and stuff like that and uh, then we went up on stage it, it was really cool it was a, a really just a once in a lifetime experience yeah, yeah. imagine 1995 green day that is the dream right <laughs> i'm not even kidding i am so jealous of you right now i was i was really happy a friend of mine libby winters was in the production of a uh was an american idiot <gasps> yeah she's one of the original cast members of that. that's, that's cool. a big deal i fucking mm-hmm. love green day oh. <laughs> pretty awesome pretty amazing but i remember listening to that soundtrack a lot too when it came out i had several copies of it i told you even when i got the first uh vhs copy of it my name was spelt wrong on the pack i was like you guys oh worked with God. me for like eight months it said no well, it's charlie talbot you remember in the uh in the november podcast you called me charlie talbot and that is a common mistake <laughs> because uh Char- you know the, the talbot thing is it's synonymous with that spelling and the stores and things like that. So it's a much more familiar. People wow. always revert to that name. You're like John huh. Cusack because people always call him Cusack. C-U-A-S-A-K. Right. Exactly. You're verified air right there, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he has blocked me on Twitter, Kate, even though I'm a huge fan. He just blocked. He again. He just blocks random people. I understand. I get it. I shouldn't take offense to it. No, you should. All I asked him. Go stand outside his house. No, I'm not gonna. Yeah. What what did you ask him? What did you ask him? You're killing me. I said this. Hey, hey, John Cusack. I heard you weren't a fan of Better Off Dead. I love it. And he blocked me. I gotta block you. That's messed up, dude. (laughs) How do you block somebody on Discord? Um, (laughs) Now you know what though. Not necessarily him that's running his Twitter. Fair, yeah. I mean, again, I, I I don't take offense to it anymore. I'm a big fan, so. And, and if I was running his Twitter, I wouldn't want people to know that he's not a huge fan of his work. Fair. I guess that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. I guess we'll, we'll get back to these uh, castmates of yours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned before James Vanderbeek. Kate and I both remarked this on the November episode that like this is such a different role for him. I'm, he's used to playing like these. 
at least nice guys. And he is such a dick in this movie. The character, obviously. And he's right. such a bully. I guess, what was your experience like working with him? And, uh, I mean, I hope he wasn't like that on set. He was the nicest guy in the whole wide world. He doesn't He doesn't talk about Angus a lot because of the bullying aspect mm. of that film. I remember, I'm trying to think of the comedian, Andre, who he has his own show. Andre, um, oh, goodness. Big bushy hair. I'm trying to remember. He does like a weird kind of comedy talk show. Oh, what is? That? <laughs> uh, they, yeah, I can't remember his name, but they 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 talked about Angus and stuff like that. And we have fond memories of that film. But I used to egg him on. I mean, Eric like, Andre, uh, right? Yeah, Eric Andre, right? I love him, you know. And uh, you know, I'm I'm doing Angus with him, and like the night before we had the fight scene. I think Kate, you might have mentioned the whole when I'm fighting him and I push him, you know, and he lands into that table. Mm, that was yeah. real. I, he broke that table because I pushed him that hard. Wow! You know, but the night before, I was with I was hanging out with him and his uh, guardian, and I was like, "Okay, I'll see you guys later. We're playing cards or something like that." And I I go to leave, and I ducked into the closet, and I knocked on the door, and uh, he goes to answer the door, and I open the closet, and I scare him, and he starts whapping at me, <laughs> <gasps> and he was because I scared the hell out of him. He goes, he goes, ah! <laughs> but I wanted to piss him off for that scene because we got along turned out i was experimenting with method act you know <laughs> because i was well if you think about it, it the whole angus thing with the like the, the the note from my about my grandma dying and all that i really started to use method because it was the only way i could get into these emotions quick without the proper training that i knew that i needed later you know <laughs> and so when we were done we did that scene and i think i did that scene Pretty much the big speech scene, I think we only shot that once. I think I did that one take. Um, and we had a couple different cameras, you know, for coverage. And uh, we did maybe one pickup for, for, for the dancing. But uh, I was really happy and I was really stoked because we were running 17 hours that night. We, oh. that we had so much to shoot for that dancing and a lot of coverage. You know, Larry Pressman from Doogie Howser. You had, you know, Celine Grant from Ghost Dad and Kevin Conley. Their coverage, their reaction, Lindsay and Chris's stuff, uh, Lindsay Price and Chris's stuff, and and uh, and then you you had uh, us behind the camera, you know, behind the stage, coming out and getting ready and the nervous pinning, and they had brought in a double for me, a, a, a full identical. The guy had my body, my face, my hairdo, my outfit on, and it freaked the hell. I thought it was so cool, but it was really scary. So I was like, I got to get this. So I did it. I did it in the one take and I did the push super hard. And uh, he went through that table for real. <gasps> and he just kept going. He was such a, a trooper. And when we were done filming, you know, I apologized to him for the night before. And he goes, you know, I get it. That was a pretty smart thing that you did. It, it, it just was weird. And I was like, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> and this wasn't James's first film that he had shot. It was the first film that came out. He did a movie oh. earlier with... Uh, Lily Soblieski. Um, and I cannot remember it, but I remember them being in a school setting. And uh, he really put up with my stuff. Like, I remember we were we went to go see Le Miz. I had called him out in front of a, a few girls and made fun of him. <gasps> and he got mad at me. But he's always been a super forgiving, like, super awesome dude. And I knew that if I just talked to him and apologized or talked to him about what was going on in my head, he would always be there for me. And he always was. Like, we were shooting Charlie Talbert show at CBS Mobile. Uh, before it got canceled, we did, like, three seasons. And I had this great idea for like a crank anchors episode where he's reenacting Dawson's Creek in his backyard like every day with puppets and it's like a real problem that he's got and he was totally on board to come do it for no money and this is well after Dawson's Creek fame you know and, and he's always been that guy who's got like the best intentions biggest heart 
and always a pleasure to be around. You oh, know? wow. Yeah, so he's, he's polar opposite of who that character was. And the place that he had to go to in his mind to be as mean as he was in the film just astonishes me to this day. It's amazing. Like, you know, again, I, I just didn't picture it with him because, you know, he's... That's just not roles he takes. So I'm glad to hear that he's a nice guy in real life. It'd be sad if he was a sadistic prick on set and that was not acting. <laughs> oh, I, I jumped at every opportunity. So I went out for varsity. I ended up getting booked as Billy Bob in the MTV show Varsity Blues. I auditioned for Varsity Blues uh, for Billy Bob. And uh, I became friends with Ron Lester. In fact, I was before he passed, I was going to be the reverend at his, at his wedding. Oh, wow. wow. And uh, But he was a wow. huge Angus fan, you know, and I was working on something on the lot, Warner Brothers. That's how we met. Uh, but we talked about that. But I had went out originally for Pacey in Dawson's Creek as well. They liked the chemistry that they could see that James James and I had in scenes that we really connected, even though we were, you know, antithesis of each other, antagonist of each other. They, they brought me in. I went in for that show 12 times. I remember being wow. in love with the script. And I ended up getting paid for the last half of my auditions because they can only audition you so much before they have to pay you to come in and work on the part. And I remember it came down between me and Josh Jackson. And they basically looked at me and said, look, we don't think you're going to be the sex symbol that we want for this. And, but you really, you really nailed it. And we appreciate you. And it was, it was awesome. Like, you know, I, I had felt recognition for getting turned down by Warner Brothers, but they gave me the courtesy of bringing me in the room and saying, look, here's what we were thinking. Here's where it's going to go. And I don't know if that's going to work, but you really nailed it. And I was like, well, thanks. Man. Will that replace the millions of dollars I would have made? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But I got to tell you, I, I really look forward to the opportunity of working with Vanderbeek. And I still do. I hope I get to work with him on a project that's, you know, either something I create or something that uh, we're put in together because I've always admired his work. Yeah, that that's awesome to hear. Okay, so she played his girlfriend in the film, but then, you know, you win her heart over. Ariana Richards, what was your experience like working with her? Ariana, it was a strange one because, again, this is... I, I'm a gregarious guy. When I was younger, I was, like, over the... I was, like, shecky... Talbert, you know, Shecky Green mixed with like Milton Berle mixed in with <laughs> Don Rickles mixed in with Chris Farley, you know, and I was an overbearing fella. So I would tell you it was it was a much more difficult scenario because she was a very well put together young lady, but very proper. Mm. And her parents were, you know, very nurturing and caring for her and her sister, Bethany, who played the younger version of her. Oh. So I would say stuff that just was way over the time. I remember we were at dinner one time and uh, somebody said, uh, do you have protection for your plug, your outlet? And I go, I hope so. You know, and the parents <laughs> were just like, nope, <laughs> nope. But they were, I mean, they took me up to their ranch and I got to ride horses, you know, and stuff like that with them. And they understood my background. <laughs> it was just a little much for some people. But Ariana, when we worked together in our scenes, she was there for me every time off camera and was so giving and so talented. And, and she's always been into art. And she, she really, really gave me what I needed. And she really embodied for me because she knew my history and the girl that I was in love with and all that stuff. Mm. She got where I was coming from when I had to do this stuff. And I, a, a credit to her, she was a blast and an honor to work with. And she actually kind of taught me to refine myself a little bit just through watching her where I would apologize for things more or not just not do them in general, because I was like, wow, it's, you know, you can still do all this and not be overbearing. That's awesome. That's great to hear. I don't know. I, I was happy to hear that again. Like, uh, I'm a little afraid asking these questions. I don't want, you know, <laughs> no, please. Like, oh, 
this person no, no. was like terrible to me. No, I mean, not she, at all. Not at all. She had a decent amount of experience for her age at that point. So, well, I was a fan. I mean, you know, and we, <laughs> bless her, she did Jurassic Park previous to Angus, and she kept trying to show me Jurassic Park, but I was working like 16, 17 hour days. So I never made it through watching Jurassic Park until well, well after the movie was over. Wow. Because I was just so damn tired, you know, and I had to be up and early, you know, up and to set and ready to go. And I am not the easiest cat to wake up. So it's, it's one of those things where I just remember during that shoot, trying to stay away from her and keep her as a figment of my imagination and also watching a lot of Field of Dream. I mean, guys, I didn't see Jurassic Park till probably 2012, 2013. What? Whoa. Yep. Dinosaurs aren't my thing. They're just like... (laughs) No, but airplanes with prisoners are. You know what? I got to say, I didn't see... I didn't fully watch Jurassic Park until after Roger Ebert gave me that review because he compared me, uh, my character, uh, to other characters that are played in film that are overweight. And he's talking about uh, the Newman character, you know, that's uh, the guy that steals the... the, I'm trying to think, but the the guy that stole the, the eggs. And he goes, well, he's not playing a character that he's this and i remember him and siskel getting into kind of a debate over it and uh it was really neat and i was like i've got to watch that movie and i loved it makes sense i love jurassic park it's okay (laughs) (laughs) too unbelievable for you i mean there's no ghosts there's no convicts on a plane what what it's not a great soundtrack what does it have going for it other than everyone else loves it but i loved her in spaced invaders so there's all love there i love spaced invaders That movie's awesome. I'll make sure Patrick listens to this. <laughs> so we talked about it again in November, but this film had a crazy amount of Oscar winners. Um, let's talk about Kathy Bates here. Uh, right, right. What's your experience uh, like with her? Kathy Bates, my God. The first day that I meet her, she asked if I can come to her trailer and help her with something. And I was like, yeah, I'd love to. You know, and we started talking. Dawn introduces me to her and and uh, I remember they'd give me this little camcorder that was in Angus, and I was recording stuff with it. And, and we went into her trailer, and she goes, look, I have the, showed me these pictures. She goes, I have the final say on the cover of Misery. I think it was Misery yeah, with the house. And, and, uh, and I, I need your help picking a cover. What? And so I picked the cover of Misery. And she said, <laughs> that's the one we'll go with. And she immediately got on the phone and said, that's the one we're going to go with. And uh, that's how she decided that's how we were going to bond. And then oh we started God. shooting the dinner scene. That is a straight up power move right there. She was so awesome. I, I, it was great. <laughs> I, I just remember being kind of weirded out after that. I was really comfortable with her. So I was able to deliver these lines that I had in the scene, even though I had no flipping clue what RSVP meant. Really? The whole time I'm like, Uncle Barry RSVP? You didn't tell me he RSVP. I had no clue what I was saying at that point. And I remember eating so much chicken and food and nobody taught me how to eat on camera. So I had repeating my eating. And I was like, this is so painful. You know, I remember not eating that day. It was very crazy, but I had fun that day. I remember that. Because that, that was the first time I've ever shot on a, on a lot in a studio building where the house was separated by floors and different, you know, sections of the soundstage. And it was really trippy because we were inside a house we'd just been in and in, 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 actually had been in in Minnesota. That's crazy. Wow. That's wild. Imagine. 
Okay, we, we talked about him a little bit before, but George C. Scott, what was that like? Did oh you know who God. he was? Dude, he gets out. I'm playing basketball. I'm shooting hoops outside of school, you know. When this guy gets out of the car, and I look over, and it's George C. Scott. And he's towering over him. He goes, oh, you must be Charlie. And I go, General Patton knows my name? <laughs> I, I kid you not, that was the first words out of my mouth. He goes, <laughs> come on. You know, and we just talked for a while and, and, you know, about the movie and what we were working on as far as like uh, what we had shot. And he was really kind and so generous in every scene and was so patient with me. Because I remember that scene where Grandpa says Superman's not brave. And, you know, this is the scene when he passes away and I'm going into this spiel. And it took me two days to get that really right. And it was a bunch of, you know, it was a camera move and all that. And we started shooting at the end of the day and I couldn't get through it. So I had to, we had to pick it up the next day. And he was so, he gave me so much advice when I was working and he really was kind of a grandpa figure to me, you know? And it was, it was funny. Like I said, that, that relationship that I had with him was the polar opposite of the one that I had with Larry Drake. The scene where I'm behind grandpa and I'm watching back and forth and he's playing chess with Irving Kirshner who was the director of Empire Strikes Back by the way. Yeah. Yeah. I'm walking back and forth and my pants fell down because <laughs> I, I don't have a butt, you know. So I'm shooting this and I've got the husky pants on and they just slide off. I kept going. I just kept going because he was always there for me. There was no way I'm going to stop the scene to pull up my pants. And uh, it was weird when we were talking. I was like, I'm sorry. And I started laughing. And it was so great because he was never, there was never a time when he was like, you got to get this right. You know, however, Aww. when I worked with Anna Thompson, she was rough to work with because she wanted me to be spot on and, you know, get everything the first time. And it was so difficult for me to work with her. She kind of scared me. So he was a perfect antithesis to her. He gave me that balance I re really required. And I knew who Peter Seller was, too. And I was so excited to be kind of in that. It was never lost on me that I was in the movies now. And I'm working with people that I've seen throughout my life. So do you take that now, that, that sort of that experience now? And if you see someone who's new to set and, like, they just got their big break, do you take them aside? And like, okay, kid, you don't have to eat the chicken. Here's what some of these, like, terms <laughs> mean now. Like, that empathy, has that carried you through? You know, I, I'm so understanding now of everything that has to happen on a set. I was so playful for such a long time and so many things that went askew for me, but not like pity you, Charlie. It was just one of those things where I wasn't quite good looking enough or I wasn't quite fat enough, which I wasn't because if you look at me, I have a pretty skinny neck. So when I booked Varsity Blues TV show, I used fishing wire to make myself look fatter as well as a progression layer of clothes because I was losing out on roles I really wanted because I wasn't really being promoted properly. And they're wow. like, oh, he's a fat kid. Sure, yeah, I'm 300 pounds or whatever it is at this point. But I don't look it from the chest up. I look very small. And when I get thicker, I look smaller for some reason because I fill out more. I don't have as many bumps, if you will. <laughs> and because I'm so tall, it just looks like a big dude. So I've learned when I'm on set that I really need to be patient. I need to listen. I need to feel what's going through. Now there's not a time where I won't be on the other side of the camera with that other actor. You know, and it's been that way for the last, you know, 10 years, 10, 11 years of my career uh, of acting is just be present for who else is there. You know, be ready to help them out. Be ready to work with them and give them emotion. You know, I just worked on the Underground Railroad with Mary Jenkins. And I worked on the Watchmen uh, with Stephen Williams and Regina King. And when you're there and J Javon Adapo, and when I'm there, 
I'm there. I'm in that moment with them. And I'm thinking what I need from them for my character to give to them, you know, and listening to what they need from me and trying to fight my point. But that's all about something that I learned when I was younger. You're not just going there to read your lines. You're going there to live that moment. And Mm. that's really what I carry through that. If somebody's having trouble, you know, it's one of those things where I will try to help them out because people have done that for me. That's awesome. Was there anyone else on set? Because obviously we see the actor. Rita Moreno was the dance instructor, right? Oh, yeah. EGOT herself. Absolutely. West Side Story. Are you kidding me? How the the hell did they get her just for like a cameo? That is a get. That has to do with, uh, I want to say it has to do with either Dawn Steele, Susan Landau, or... Patrick Johnson. I I know that that was Madame Rulinska was a favor for someone. You were right when you said that on the podcast because I remember somebody <laughs> having talked about it. Yeah. You know, um, to be in this film, but I I think it didn't hurt that we had George C. Scott in her scene. Of course, yeah. Do, do you know what I mean? So I think it was one of those yeah. things where it's like it, it has this person and that person. She's like, oh yeah, I mean, you know, there's there's no two if ands about you know ways about it. It was. Such, such an ancillary scene, but a ridiculously fun scene to shoot. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's even a point when you watch me step it on her scarf. There's no real pull. There's like a whole like bunch of her scarf that's still laying there, but she's playing it anyways. And, you know, it's hilarious. Like the footsteps. And they're just trying to prove how how bad I am at dancing, you know, and how this is going to be a disaster for poor little white. You know, and uh, I, yeah, I wouldn't have take, taken that day back for the world because you're in a room with these Oscar champions, amongst other things, and you're just like, I, I'm here now, and this is the greatest place on earth. Right? It's you so know, it's, awesome. You know, it's wild. So I'm going to get woo woo for a second. It is like, <laughs> seems like it's all kind of faded that you were meant to be in this industry, Charlie, because how often does someone's first job when they're 15 years old is like with three Oscar winners and you're headlining your own movie. That that doesn't happen, does you know what I mean? You know, there's a lot of things I would have done differently if I thought about it, um, which I didn't, you know, and my life went a certain way, but I'm really pleased the way everything went. I mean, for years after that, I got to work with a bunch of my friends. I got to meet a lot of my heroes. I worked with a lot of the Second City cast and oh, crew. Yeah. I, I got to work with a lot of directors that I admired. I, I got to be around a lot of people that I would have never met. You know, it, it was kind of a, it felt to me kind of some higher being's way of saying, hey, look, I uh, I just read what happened to you in the first 15 years of your life. I'm going to make it up to you. I got you covered. <laughs> and then they just handed me this. you know. And uh, I had quit acting. The last movie I did before I quit acting was a movie called Art School Confidential with Terry Zweigoff, Angelica Houston, uh, oh, yeah, Steve Buscemi, Ethan yeah, Squee. Yeah, yeah. That movie was crazy. I, I went out for that movie. It was the best script I'd read since Dawson's Creek. And I was like, I have to be a part of this movie. And I called my manager and I was like, and I was like, you got to get me on this. I have to work on this movie. I will book it. I promise you. And I flew, you know, my friend's parents flew in and I spent five days with them. They're from New York. So I was really getting the dialect down. And I go in, I audition for the the film with the casting director. And it's a Saturday night at six o'clock is when I get the audition. It's like a last minute. Okay, fine. We'll see him. So I go in, I do the audition. This is for Ethan Suplee's character. And uh, she starts crying, the casting director. And I go, are you okay? And she goes, no, I feel terrible. And she goes, what? Yeah. She goes, we just cast Ethan Suplee in the film. Oh. And I would have loved to present you as another option because you're both really good. Wow. And uh, I was like, you know what? That doesn't bother me. And she goes, why is that? And I go, because there's another dude in the film that plays the killer 
in the movie about the killer that Ethan is making. I want to be that guy. He's supposed to be like a mini Ethan. And, uh, <laughs> and she goes, oh, yeah. I go, I would love to do that. You know, I love Ethan. Ethan's a friend of mine. I, I'm absolutely into this. You know, and at the time, Ethan and I would see each other live. You know, we're really friendly. I was like, okay, I'd love to work with Ethan. It'd be great. So long story short, she goes, I'll see what I can do. So three weeks goes by and nothing. And I know they're going to start production really soon on this film. And I knew somebody in the casting office and I called my, my manager. And I go, got to give me the casting director's number. And she goes, <laughs> not going to happen, buddy. And I'm like, wow. you have to give me this number or you're fired. It's as simple as that, Bev. I love you, but I'm going to let you go. Remember that you worked for me. And I'd never done that before. I'd never been so big headed, but I knew there was something about this film. I said to her, I said, look, if I screw this up, you can drop me as a client and I'll give you 10% for the rest of my life. And she goes, she goes, okay, you know what you're doing. So I call the casting director's office, hoping to speak to my friend. And who picks up? The casting director. Uh-oh. I'm like, oh, hey. And she's like, hey, Charlie, why are you calling? I'm like, I don't know if you remember this, but three weeks ago, I came into your office, six o'clock at night, and you cried when I was done with my audition and said you'd wish you had me as an option before you guys cast Ethan. And I told you I'd love to be the secondary character to Ethan because I love you. And she goes, well, look, and I'm on speakerphone. I don't know this, but she goes, look. I didn't want to smack you in the face by giving you a lesser part to your friend. And I go, oh, my God, are you kidding me? Smack me in the face. Step on my balls <laughs> with heels. I don't care what you do. I want to work on this. This is such a great script. And all of a sudden, I hear laughter in the background. And I recognize one of the laughs. It's John Malkovich. And oh my God. Terry Zweigoff, they're in the meeting with the casting director. And, uh, and God knows why she's picking me up at that point. But I hear Terry go, Charlie. <laughs> and I go, yeah he's like it's terry here i'm like oh hey terry he goes oh show up to set on monday you got the part wow yeah and i was just i was like are you kidding me so they just canned whoever they cast and i got to go work on that film and it was the last film i did before i stepped out of the business for a while wow that story makes me want to die and celebrate a secondhand embarrassment and like congratulations <laughs> at the same time yeah i was gonna say it's awesome it's awesome. I clammed up when I saw John Malkovich on Monday on set. I couldn't say anything. I was so nervous. It was, <laughs> John Malkovich is the only person that ever really took my breath away. I was just like, wow. you have so much talent. <laughs> He's the star of Con Air. So yes, I agree. I was going to say, exa- I knew you would like connection that connection here. Of that. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's one of those things, you know, I feel there's been a lot of instances in this career where I've pushed for my own luck because I just knew something was right about it. And it's worked out. And so I agree with you that Angus, for some reason, was meant to be. And it's afforded me a lot of really amazing times throughout my life and a lot of positive things that I can do with my life. And the people that I get to reach out and make laugh or cry when they need to do it, that's that's what it's been about for me really since day one. Yeah, I mean, we definitely appreciate it. It's awesome. There's definitely fate it here. There's fate at play. I believe in that shit. Absolutely, absolutely. I do have one more Angus question, Charlie. What's up? Oh, yeah, Angus. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What's up? (laughs) (laughs) You know, off air, you provided me with this insight, but just wanted to ask you on air. Do you know why this film was, like, missing for God knows how long? (laughs) Kate, you'd have more insight than insight than i did but we originally did it because kate you messaged me you're like oh we should do angus it just came on streaming and it hasn't been on there for forever (laughs) so why was that so new line cinema and uh turner uh ted turner uh, i got to meet ted when i was younger when we first were uh, doing the film 
they did not re-up the rights for the music when they mm. sold it off to Warner Brothers, the property off to Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers did not have any of the rights to the music on Angus. So I think 09, 08, something like that, there started this petition online with many, 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 many thousands of names that wanted this thing to be available. So in the last five, six years, maybe seven years, Warner Brothers released it on a limited, like kind of like a Criterion kind of release where you could buy it. And the cover of the, the movie was actually just me and Ariana and Chris, all with Don Steele, the producer. It wasn't actually the, the Angus cover on the DVD oh, wow. that you could buy. Mm. So it was kind of like a special, okay, you want to buy it? You want to buy it? Warner Brothers finally decided to pop in the last few years and um, I guess four years, three, four years. And they bought the rights to the music for the film so that they could release it. And since then it's been airing and being purchased online. You can go on Amazon and grab it. And I've started to see my residual checks again from Angus. There you awesome. go. Um, <laughs> well, it's really neat. You know, it's really neat because this piece of work, this story that we told no matter what happened to it it's still connected with the people it needed to connect to and they're the ones that made it come to fruition you know made it available for the public it had nothing to do with me it was just the love of the film in fact uh, somebody just created a new poster work for it with the big petri dish with a little red dot and uh, his name is jimmy he's uh, they just made it available on etsy too and I've got a copy of that coming from the guy who's created it. And it's going to Patrick first, and it's going to me. And we're signing his copies. And they're, they're sending off a copy. And then so I've, cool. Yeah, it's it's really kind of a it's it's kind of neat how the following has grown for it. Well, absolutely. We don't stop there, though, guys. It's time to release the director's cut, cowards. <laughs> Come on, Warner Brothers. What are you afraid of? Do you think we'll ever get that? Do you think we'll get like the true intended Angus cut? It was so strange. On TBS, as I mentioned earlier, many, many hours ago, um, <laughs> they did release a version of the film with The Gay Father, and it aired on TBS for like two months and then just disappeared. But and I don't know if they were testing it or what happened with it or how that copy got out. It's an early one they sent off or the wrong print. But I would give apples to see that uh, full cut of the film because if they had released it then, they would have been such a powerhouse uh, as oh, far yeah. as messages went, Absolutely. and the film would have been, in, it would have went in such a different direction. I mean, we had picketers on the set. I uh, heard tell Molotov cocktails were involved when we were shooting wow. the football scenes because you have to let the city know what you're filming when you're th- while you're there, mm. and you know, and you have to tell them when you're using their location and stuff like that. So there was a strong push against it. I know the director was definitely not happy with the, the cut, the final product. And no no fault to anyone's own. You know, Dawn was doing what she thought was best. Susan was doing what she thought was best for the film, Chuck. They really did cut together something that made sense and was kind of what was already being offered to the public. And whoever decided, you know, this wasn't going to play well, that's where it all fell, you know? But uh, I got to tell you, it's one of the best things that's ever happened to me in my life, regardless of the form it came out, you know, being in that experience and being able to, you know, have the career I've had thus far and the reboot in my career that I've had thus far and the people I get to work with. I can't complain one bit. Absolutely. And we appreciate it so much. And we appreciate you sharing this with us because it's been... It's been awesome. Like I'm nerding out because it's like a dream come true for me because I'll talk about these teen films and you know I'll watch them and I'll <laughs> absorb them and I always have so many questions and for all of them to get answered in such awesome ways. Again, like I said, nerding out, but so <laughs> so happy to have you, Charlie. Katie now you see them. why Three O'clock High is my favorite film. 
<laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Kate, anything else you want to say regarding Angus Strikes Back? No, I think we've covered it all. I just I just want to reiterate, I obviously picked this movie the first time. I do love this movie. And you have to, you know, sometimes critique the things you love. But I'm a big fan of Charlie. Charlie, my buddy. So I just want to reiterate that. To- <laughs> no, you know, what? I loved your honesty. I loved you guys' honesty. And you were able to see it from my point of view as well. If you guys had just been like, nah, that guy sucked. You know, just moved on. I would have been like, well... Hmm, somebody's on the naughty list. But no, you guys were like straight up about it. And that's that's really what made me draw to you because it's all about your own truth. I just think too, you know, I rewatched it this time with the understanding that we were coming back to talk about what we said the first time. And like, they put an entire movie on a 15 year old's shoulders with, you know, who was his first role. And so, hell man, like, pretty fucking impressive to accomplish so even you know even though we had some critiques and i think that frankly the information that your dad was going to serve to be that sort of triad that third mm-hmm. tentpole of the emotional you know journey of angus i think that makes a lot of sense and i think that frankly they did a huge disservice in cutting that story out because it really took away from Angus the character as a multi-dimensional teenager who did have, you know, an emotional vocabulary to a 15-year-old who is just kind of angry and surly all the time and you don't necessarily understand why other than puberty, you know? Right, right. And, you know, a lot of that original script, uh, Jill Gordon wrote the original rundown for the script, wrote the original screenplay, and then uh, Patrick went in with his buddy and they revamped it and worked a lot with the storyline and really made that movie what it was supposed to be. And then, you know, powers it be. You know, they, they have to do what they think the market will want. And I so I follow no one. I will say this. It was pretty subversive. So I'm a big dork about the soundtrack, obviously. And so they did keep the sort of pro-gay message with the inclusion of Pansy Division, which is like this legendary gay punk band. So I think that <laughs> somebody out there had a subtle FU, you know, a bunch of suburban teenagers and tweenagers discovered Pansy Division who have, you know, who are great. And I'll still go see them in concert to this day because of Angus. So that oh. subversive spirit is still kind of alive in the movie that we see now. You just got to dig a little bit more, I think, for it. And listen to this podcast over and over again. <laughs> well, we appreciate that. That's for sure. Oh, man. <laughs> Angus fans are going to die about this, Charlie. Seriously. <laughs> this is now that this is like now the reference point book for them. So they can come and get all the inside scoop because you were gracious enough to hear a shit talking and then say, no, you know what? I want to go talk about fear with these kids <laughs> <laughs> I got like 12 hours I want to be on the air with these guys and I want to I want to dish the dirt and since then uh, you know we did three o'clock high might even do Wraith who knows oh yeah we, we got to cover that one <laughs> I've been doing my research but Sparky Bark Sparky Mark he heard you say fear and he got excited he does that's oh my god that's right he said fear earlier a- and he started barking <laughs> that's amazing oh my god good times during quarantine <laughs> Charlie, so thank you again so much. I know Kate and I really can't thank you enough for this. This was so awesome. Any other final thoughts you want to mention? Or, of course, if not, just plug away and let people know where they, uh, they can find you. Are we doing a sleeping bag thing? Is this a different kind of show? What are we doing? I guess you never answered what your Angus sleeping bag would look like. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you want to, sure. Super simple. My, my Angus uh, sleeping bag would be absolutely just a blue bag and the hood would be a red hood. Superman. We're- Boom. Hell yeah. Boom. Works, works. <laughs> Mine would be plum. <laughs> Just a plum sleeping bag. Nice. Oh, man. <laughs> 
where can people follow you, find you, all that? Yeah, and, and, I mean, I'm pretty interactive on my Instagram. I'm available on Facebook, but I really play with my, my Instagram more so. If you have questions or want to shoot the breeze, follow me at uh, Charlie Talbert underscore big, the big guy in the tie. Uh, that kid, the big guy in the tie thing came from when I was doing stand-up. So, yeah, just follow me there. Uh, I'll tell you what movies, you know, I've got coming out. Like, uh, I think Max Reload and the Nether Blasters, uh, that comes out in a month and a half. As far as my understanding goes, that'll be with me and uh, Hassie Harrison from uh, Tacoma FD, uh, a huge cast, oh, Greg Grunberg, uh, who produced as well, um, directed by uh, Jeremy Tramp and uh, Scott Condit. Uh, that's going to be a fun one. It's it's very um, submersive. It's it's almost the it's to me, it's almost the next Jumanji, if you will. Uh, mm. Yeah, it's, it's going to be fun. I, I'm pretty excited about this film. What platforms is it going to come out on? I'm not sure. I mean, because quarantine times, I'm assuming it probably won't go to theaters. It did get a theatrical release deal, but I'm assuming it'll go to VOD, which doesn't bother me um, as long as people get to see it. That's that's the biggest thing. Um, I've, I, you know, I've got different projects coming out, so you know, I'll keep people abreast on on uh, Instagram. Absolutely. You know, really, again, I can't wait to see that film and everything else that you're involved in, the, the Barry Jenkins project as well. Uh, exciting stuff. Kate, do you want people to follow you, find you, your pajama no. stuff? Go follow Charlie. Char- follow Charlie. <laughs> this is no, I'm an idiot. Whatever, <laughs> any brain cells you might want to devote to me, go fi- go follow Charlie on Instagram. He's a much better follow. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you want to talk about Con Air. Oh, know. hell yeah. If you want to oh, talk Con yeah. Air, my cell phone number. Yeah, yeah right. And then you got to tag me. I'm on Twitter Charlie Tyler on Twitter, but tag me in that too because I want to hear your discussion with her about Con Air because I just like watching her talk about Con Air. Fucking love Con Air. Oh my god, I just rewatched it again a couple of days ago. It's it's just the best movie. <laughs> I feel like every time we chat, you said you just rewatched it again a couple of days ago. <laughs> I watch it because I watch it once a month at least. I'm not kidding. It's so good. If I ever worked with John Malkovich, I would just be like, remember that one time in Con Air? Every single time I talked to him. And he'd be like, I took that movie for a paycheck. Stop talking about it. Everybody. But the thing is, the beauty of Con Air is everyone took that movie for a paycheck. And yet it's magic. Hmm. It is magic. Oh, it's the best movie in the world. I mean, I would put it right up there with Angus, honestly. I was going to say. I mean. Angus, Con Air. All I'm saying is, Charlie, if there's ever Con Air 2 or Electric Boogaloo, you kill who you have to to get cast in it. I'm in. I'm in. Well, I'd like to think that this triad is magic, and hopefully the three of us can <laughs> get together again and talk about a film as well. I really appreciate it, guys. And, you know, go. If you haven't seen Angus and you just listened to, like, an hour and a half of us talking about it, go watch <laughs> Angus. Shame on you. It's available streaming everywhere. And remember... There is no normal. Once again, can't thank Charlie Talbert enough. That was an awesome episode. What a treat. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Charlie. And thanks, Kate Hudson, for being my right-hand person on this episode and asking some great questions. And hello for originally bringing this movie to my attention. So thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Kate. Like I said, I hope to have this triad again. And I know I'll have Charlie back on this podcast. Angus strikes back. I love it. And let's be honest, he could have been a total asshole to us because we weren't too flattering again on that original episode in November that you can check out on cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me in our archives. And I just really, really, really appreciate that he's been such a nice guy and he was so 
open with us and he shared his story and wow you know listening to that back I was like god damn the dude's been through a lot and yet he's so positive I think we could all learn some lessons from Charlie Talbert because he's like doing his thing and he's awesome at it so bravo and I can't wait to check out all the projects he says he has coming up some seem really 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 cool again can't wait for that thank you for listening guys oh just because this is a special episode I'm not leaving you without homework. You definitely have homework. Remember, we're bi-weekly, guys. That's every Monday and every Friday. And of course, this being a Friday, your homework is for Monday. And it's Cheer Monday. Once again, the film we have is fired up. Name, 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 name. Jennifer, hi. Are you going to the bonfire tonight? I was just saying to my boy Sean here, I cannot wait to go to the bonfire tonight so I can hang out with... Jennifer. Jennifer. Nick and Sean are two of the best players in the state. Oh, bump the football camp. Two weeks without girls, we wouldn't be bummed. But this summer... Are you guys psyched for cheer camp or what? There's going to be 300 girls up there who want it just as much as we do. 300 girls who want it just as much as we do. Screw football. Let's go cheer. Donna Jones! What a fantastic idea! It's Nick and Sean. They'll boldly go. You might have everyone else fooled, but not me. Where no player has ever gone before. I think our bus crashed and we're in heaven. Now. What have you? Smell. You're at university now. Fire it up, university. Welcome to cheer camp. She's such a fox. What are you doing later? Not you. Damn it. The guys who never thought they could fall for anyone. Where are you going, bro? Carly and I are going to work on a reverse cartwheels. I'm having trouble with my rotation. It's like, ah! You like her! I knew it! You're going to ruin everything! Ow! We'll have to take their game. Guys, this is my boyfriend. What's up, guys? I'm Dr. Rick. Really? Pound? To a whole new level. He's pre-med at Illinois. Then why do you call yourself doctor? Why put off the inevitable? Who's that? The Panthers. You guys came back. We're a different team this year, Gwyneth. See you on the cheer field. It's that big chunk of grass you come in last on every year. Panthers out. What do the Panthers have that you don't have? Laser hair removal. Kick-ass cheer. Confidence. Let's do this. I want to cut the blonde one. What? I'm just saying. I haven't felt this way before. I gotta tell her. I really like... Carly Davidson! What's up, Dick? It's Rick. Dr. Rick. I keep doing that. You just look like such a dick to me. <laughs> Fired up. See you guys. We're close. What do you two think you're doing? <laughs> Practicing. Al dente? <laughs> Proceed. Hey, Tigers! Yeah! Dude, <laughs> I like it. Never given up. So watch Fired Up wherever you can. And our guest for this glorious film, our returning guest, from the Contenders podcast, Island Addington, and a new guest, a first-timer, Kelsey Murray. And Kelsey has cheerleading experience, so I can't wait to talk to her about this film. Once again, guys, thank you so much for listening in today, listening to this interview, and listening to Charlie's story. It's a really, really, really awesome story. Thank you, Kate. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, all you slumberers out there. <sighs> I think it's time for bed, though. I think it's time to hit the hay and dream of better days, that's for sure. Remember, guys, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop to look around once in a while, you might miss it. Speaking of missing it, 
I almost missed to tell you about our social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Remember, class participation is a huge, huge part of your grade. Let me know what you thought about this episode. Hit up Charlie. Hit up Kate. Hit us up. I'm very, very, very curious to hear your opinions. So let's leave you with a song that wasn't on the Angus soundtrack, but should have been, and that's Wanda by, well, should have been Weezer, but it actually was released on a separate Reverse Cuomo project. So here we go, Wanda. Later, dudes. What's wrong with me? I'm kind of funny. I'm not a dummy. I'm all alone Nobody sees me No one talks to me Unless they're laughing Laughing at me Except for her She was my true friend Dancing with me She was my girlfriend Somebody please Tell her for me Wanda, you're my only love You're so lucky You're still here? It's over. Go home. Go.